I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would send the same Holy Spirit who inspired this word to come and open our hearts to its truth. Please remove from us apathy and cynicism, callousness or rebellion, so that we may really be hungry for this bread of life that feeds our souls, that nourishes our hearts for your work, and fills us with the joy that is our strength. This we ask for the honor and glory of your dear Son and our dear Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. It's kind of interesting to me that a lot of the, the verbiage that you hear sometimes is the different campaigns to eliminate things. And one of the campaigns to eliminate things that's going on currently is eliminating poverty, eliminating hunger, these various things. And I find it interesting, however, that Jesus says in Matthew 26, the poor you shall have with you always. He didn't just arrive, you know, come to that conclusion out of a vacuum, but we see that he's actually commenting, so to speak, in light of what we see and we heard from Deuteronomy 15. That there would be poor among the people of Israel. And one of the realities is that there's always, until Jesus returns and makes all things new, there are always going to be poor. The question is not whether or not there are poor people, but how we interact with those poor people. That is sort of the question. And that is what I kind of considered as we, as I studied this passage this week and thought about what it is that Paul was saying to Philemon and what Paul was saying about Philemon. And so last week we thought about the redemptive community, and this morning I want us to think of the refreshing community. Yes, I'm taking one word and kind of making a community out of that, but I think that's what the community, part of what the community of God's people is intended to do. Our big idea this morning is that godly community is where Christ refreshes the saints. We're going to look at this in kind of three ways. And as I had it on my whiteboard, there was sort of the idea of what Paul was initially saying, why, you know, why he was thankful, what Paul was praying for Philemon, and then sort of why Paul was thankful again. So that's sort of how it's going to break up. First off, we are to rejoice in the love and faithfulness of others. Paul has shifted his focus. Remember, the, this letter was written by Paul, and I didn't say, and Timothy. Okay, But we're going to see that basically all of the rest of this letter is written by Paul because it's always going to be the singular personal first-person pronoun, I. There's no we in the rest of this letter. And so I'm not sure what Timothy was doing, but Paul is really hitting home here. So it's Paul addressing. And we noticed that last week there were a number of people in the introduction to this letter was was written, and yet the rest of this letter from here on out, it's going to be the 
uh, second person singular the rest of the way. All of those yous that you're going to see in the beauty of English language are intended to be singular yous, not plural yous. So he's writing specifically to Philemon. So these things are addressed, these prayers are addressed to Philemon. Let's keep that in mind as we go there. And he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Paul begins this way in almost every letter that he writes. The only exceptions would be the letter to the Galatians, where he says, who has bewitched you? Okay, The letter to the Galatians and then the, the pastoral letters that are written to Timothy and Titus. I want us to pause for a moment on this. Because I think that pattern in Paul's life and is found in his letters is a very significant sort of thing that we should pause on. Because either Paul is lying in the sense of he's not remembering these people very often, um, or Paul is seriously committed to prayer. What we, if we stop and think, we recognize that Paul has all of these people on his heart, and precisely because they're on his heart, they're in his mind, and therefore in his prayers. And so, just as we talked about with Epaphras and the others struggling in prayer for the Colossians, so we see Paul struggling in prayer for not just the Colossians, but the Athenians, and the Ephesians, and the Laodiceans, and not just churches, but also individuals. Paul was a praying man. It's easy to do that, I guess, when you're in prison. But I don't think it started when Paul was in prison. His, his prayers were characterized by thanksgiving as well as petition. There's a balance in Paul's prayers that we seem to find even here in his letter to Philemon. In other words, Paul was able, even though he's in prison, to cultivate gratitude to God for what he sees taking place in the lives, not just his life, but the lives of other Christians. He's grateful, not just what God does in him, but what God does in them. And Sometimes we are very grateful about what God does for us, but we, he can easily lose sight of what God is doing in others and therefore not have that same gratitude for what God is doing in those that are around us. He had heard these reports about Philemon, presumably from Epaphras, and perhaps even Onesimus. In other words, these men are bringing a good report. In spite of the problems that Onesimus was having with Philemon, he brought a good report to Paul about Philemon's character. I think that somehow speaks well of Onesimus. It may have taken him a while to get there, but he got there. Paul is particularly grateful for your love and the faith toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And there is a mouthful right there that's a little bit difficult. First off, we see that the uh, ESV properly recognizes that the, the prepositions are different when it talks to the, about the Lord and about the saints. 
It's with respect to the Lord and it's toward the saints or into, into the saints. But this is a difficult thing to sort of unpack precisely because it's a little confusing. For instance, Colossians chapter 1. Paul says in verse 4, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Do you recognize what happened there? The faith was toward Christ. The love was toward the saints. But here in Philemon, it would appear that the love and the faith are toward both Christ and the saints. And so the question has to come up in my mind, how do you have faith with regard to the saints? Does anyone else kind of have that question? Or is that just something that pastors think about when there's nothing to do in the office? Okay, good. I saw one hand rise there to recognize that they kind of have that question as well. Essentially, when we look at the larger section here of four to seven, we see that Paul is using a literary device called a chiasm. And, you know, some of you may have remembered that from when you took English literature. It's too bad Rena's not here. She'd probably be filled with joy over the fact that I used the word chiasm. And so, you know, there's the first use of uh, love and faith. A and B, and then he repeats both of them, but he kind of like deals with, I want to make sure I get it right, don't goof. He deals first with the fellowship of your faith, which reflects the faith in the first part of this sentence, and then he talks about your love toward the saints later on, so there's, it goes A, B, B prime, A prime. So it's kind of a reverse order in the second time through. But what's interesting is that both your faith and your love on the second time through are really reflected toward, again, the community of faith, the saints. And so that builds on this idea that both the love and the faith are directed toward both Christ and the church, not one or the other. What helps us to understand what this means is that the very word pistis, which we translate faith, can mean either faith or faithfulness, depending on the context. And so I think that the context here and how it's being used is more the idea of faithfulness. He is excited, he is thankful for Philemon's faithfulness with respect to Christ and towards Christ's people. Meaning, for Paul, it is impossible to think of being faithful to Christ without also being faithful to his people. He doesn't necessarily separate these things to say, oh, I love my wife's head, but not the rest of her body. All of Amy, not just part of Amy. And so when we understand that the church is the body and the bride of Jesus Christ, we not only love Christ, we're not only faithful to Christ, but we're faithful and loving towards His body. And that's what He is commending Philemon for in this instance. That He has this love and a faithfulness with regard to His consistency of, of action towards not only Christ, but also the saints. 
And so what Paul is recognizing here for us to listen to is that saving faith bears fruit. One fruit is faithfulness toward Christ and His body. And so this is what leads John Calvin to write in, with response to, uh, on this verse here, this passage. Although faith has a hidden residence in the heart, yet it communicates itself to men by good works. It shows up in how one lives. So, the faith that Philemon had in Christ revealed itself to everyone else in his faithfulness to God's people. So let's get back to gratitude. Cultivating gratitude really includes this recognition of the faithfulness of others. And so, like Paul, when I pray for you all, I'm not just laying out petitions for you, but for many or most of you, I am grateful for God's work in you and God's work through you. That's part of how I cultivate that gratitude. I, rem- I try to call to mind the things that God has been doing through you as individuals and as groups so that I am grateful to God for you in addition to making petitions for you. So as the fruit of the Spirit, Christ cultivates this gratitude in us through the faithfulness of others. Secondly, Christ gives us good things to do good things. Okay, This is not a prosperity gospel message. Have no fear. Not going down that road. But Paul shifts from the positive reports he has received to now the petitions that he makes in Philemon's behalf. And here we hit another sort of difficult issue with translation and interpretation. The Greek has the word koinonia. I'm sure many of you have heard that somehow, some way, at some point. The NIV and the ESV both translate that word here, sharing, and it has that sort of idea of evangelism that, that kind of goes with it and, and uh, seems very attractive. That the, the idea would be this, that as you share your faith, you grow in your understanding of the good things we have in Christ Jesus. That would be how you would interpret it that way. Okay? But I'm not sure that's what it's saying. Okay? Koinonia can mean um, participation, can mean fellowship, it can mean association, can mean community. Okay? If you want to spend some time looking at this word koinonia and what it means in the life of a body, I recommend to you the small book, Jerry Bridges' uh, Crisis of Community. It studies this. Great little book. You can find it. It's kind of hard to find these days. But the idea, I think, here is probably not the community of your faith, but really the participation of your faith. Now, that sounds a little weird now, doesn't it? But it has this notion of faith at work. That Philemon's faith, as we saw, resulted in faithfulness. And so he's, he's making a petition for his, his participation in the faith. Okay. And he wants it 
to become effective. This idea of being active and operative. In other words, part of what Paul is saying here is that faith is not a passive thing. Faith does not just receive. But faith actually has direction and intentionality in which it moves. And this morning I prayed for Alison McCurdy's wedding, and, and I know that uh, her mom, Linda, and the rest of the family by extension, have been very busy lately. They, they've had purpose. It's not just exercise and expending energy, but they've been very specific about cleaning up certain things, preparing certain things, making plans. That's kind of the idea. Not just busyness, but effectiveness. Accomplishing particular goals. And so, what Paul is getting at is he wants Philemon's participation through his faith to become effective for something. We're getting there. We'll get there. But I want to remind you of something Sinclair Ferguson has said. Lest we think it's about the strength of our faith, He says that the weakest faith gets the same strong Christ as does the strongest faith. And so whether your faith is strong or weak, it doesn't matter because your faith is in the same Christ. And it is the object of your faith that matters, not the strength of your faith in Him that matters. And so all who have Him by faith have all of Him by faith. It's not done in accordance to the measure of their faith. And so they have the strong Jesus who created all things with them. They have the wise Jesus, all of the wisdom of Jesus, not part of it. And so as Philemon participates through his faith, in a sense, all of Christ is at work in Philemon to accomplish these things. And so the effectiveness is not about Philemon. The effectiveness is about Christ. Back to that active, passive thing. We've talked about in the past justifying faith. And justifying faith is passive because it receives Christ as He is presented in the Gospel so that on the basis of that reception of Christ, we are declared to be righteous in God's eyes to be accepted by God on the basis of Christ's righteousness, not our own. And so justifying faith is passive, but sanctifying faith is active. It's engaged. And so what Paul is talking about here is this this sanctifying faith. Active. Moving. He wants Philemon to gain full knowledge of every good thing. And so as he is active, not as he's in an ivory tower studying the Scriptures, as he is active and participating through his faith, then he gains a greater understanding, a more full knowledge of these good things. Every good thing. And so knowledge is not meant to be merely intellectual, but our knowledge of the gospel is meant to be incredibly practical. And so as I've, we've talked in our mission statement, we have, I talk about, 
gospel knowledge and gospel practice. Okay? The gospel, coming to a, a greater understanding and knowledge of the gospel is intended to lead to a greater practice shaped by the gospel. A lifestyle that is incre- increasingly influenced by the knowledge of the gospel. And so essentially, that is what Paul is praying for him. Because Philemon hasn't arrived. We're about to see in the rest of this letter that there's this one area, at least one area, the occasion of the letter, that that gospel practice needs to grow in, and that is with regard to Onesimus. And so Paul is grateful for where he has already come through Christ, but he recognizes he has not arrived in Christ, and so he continues to pray for him that Christ would be at work. Greater understanding, greater practice. Now, these every good, this every good thing is qualified as that which is in us for the sake of Christ. And so the focus here is on Christ's work in us. The blessings we have received in Christ that are in us that are rooted, of course, in His work for us. Everything comes to us because of Christ's work for us upon the cross and in His obedience. But Christ not only worked for us, but in sanctification He works in us so that then in mission He will work through us. And so Paul is getting there. He's praying for the continuing change of Philemon in this process. United to Christ, in whom the fullness of God dwells, we receive all that is in Christ. And Christ gives us these good things precisely so that we are able to do good things, okay? Through us, Christ does these things for his glory, for his sake, in other words. And I want us to kind of sit on this for a minute. Probably think, Steve, you've already sat there for about five minutes. I understand this. But I want to bring some other scripture kind of into this to kind of fill this thing out a little bit. This brings up sort of the, the principle that we see in, in Galatians 6 and 2 Corinthians 9, that idea of reaping and sowing. Well, first you sow, then you reap. But the point is, you can only reap that which you have sown. If I sow lettuce, I shouldn't expect to get cucumbers. If I sow corn, I should not expect to get oranges or anything else. Okay? Now, so there's this principle that we find in those passages. And let me just say that. The, the point is this, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8. Maybe not. 6. I love my eyes. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, for whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Paul also addresses this similarly in Galatians 6, verse 7, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whoever, whatever one sows, that will he also reap. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. I left out the part about those who sow to this flesh will reap what the flesh comes out. 
And so there's this principle at work. If I sow to my selfishness, meaning I satisfy my selfishness, I should not be surprised to find that I become more selfish. If I give way to my anger, I should not be surprised to find myself becoming more angry, more easily, more often. Sowing to the flesh, I reap the flesh. But if I sow according to the Spirit, if I give way to the Spirit's call towards uh, generosity, uh, then I will find that I will probably become a more increasingly generous person. And that's what Paul essentially has at work here in Philemon. He wants them to recognize, keep sowing to the Spirit, and you will keep reaping from the Spirit. The more kindness you're sowing, the more kindness you're going to reap. But there's something else there in 2 Corinthians 9. This time it's verse 8. I double-checked. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. This brings us back to Deuteronomy. And I goofed, precisely because I thought it was Deuteronomy 15 when I was looking at this morning. I had some mental error. I don't know what happened. I'll find the passage for you. But the passage says that contrasts with Deuteronomy 15 and saying, you will not have any poor among you. But it talks about how, because God is putting you in this incredibly great land that is full of all kinds of things, so that if you continue to walk in my ways, which includes gleaning and tithing and all of that, then you will be able to take care of the poor in your land. So that there won't be people who are destitute. There will not be equality, so to speak, but no one will be destitute and alone because there will be enough in the land so that all have what they need. And some will have more than what they need. Christ giving us all the grace we need, the good stuff, not so that we can just wallow in selfishness, but so that we can then pass it on to other people who have need. As those needs arise and we have ability. John Stott, in talking about this, I think makes a great assessment. Some Christians sow to the flesh every day and wonder why they don't reap holiness. Holiness is a harvest. Whether you reap or not depends almost entirely on what and where you sow. In other words, it starts with the little stuff. And it starts to grow. This points again to that sowing-reaping dynamic that none of us can escape. Not one of us. That's part of God's economy. And so we see that Christ who worked for our salvation works in us so that our our faith is effective and God's working through us to help others. All right. Third last thing. Maybe not so short. We'll see. Faithful communities refresh one another. Paul goes back in the last couple verses here to the positive report that he has heard and perhaps goes a little bit deeper. Because Paul declares that he has much joy and comfort 
from your love. And so the news of Philemon's active faith brought Paul joy. Not just gratitude, but joy. But it also brought him consolation or encouragement. In other words, seeing the fruit in the, of the Gospel and the lives of others will bring gladness to Paul's heart as it should every pastor's heart. We see that in uh, the second letter to John, in the first few verses. He rejoices that they, have, that they walk in the truth. As a pastor, I'm glad when I see the, my people walking in the truth. When I see them make the hard decisions and because of their faith in Christ and, and go the right way. When I see them expressing their faith through love as it talks about in Galatians. I get excited and I get encouraged when I hear of these things. Just like it brought encouragement to Paul. And so the joy um, was produced because of the hearts of others. That's really kind of the key part here. It wasn't because Philemon refreshed Paul, but again, because Philemon refreshed others. Their hearts needed to be refreshed, which means that their hearts were weary or perhaps their hearts were broken. Their hearts were heavily burdened. And Philemon came in seeing this and in some way, shape, or form refreshed them. They were refreshed through you, Paul says. His good works refreshed weary, beat-down saints. What a great testimony Philemon had. Philemon... Remember, he's a slave owner, and so it's in that culture, he was part of the haves. There really wasn't much of a middle class in the Roman Empire. Basically, you were poor or you were rich. There weren't many people in between. Okay? He was one of the, what we would probably call the rich people. But he did not use his wealth just for himself. We see that he used his wealth for those who needed to be refreshed. This is appropriate. He supplied the needs of others that were in the congregation. In other words, he's acting just like the early church did in Acts 2 through 5. We read that they sold property when, you know, that was what Barnabas did. He sold ex- excess land, gave the proceeds to the church so that they could distribute those proceeds to the poor. Not a bad thing. The church didn't mandate that Barnabas do this. Barnabas decided he wanted to do this. It was of his own free will and love, just like the others. And so what we find here, I think, is that we can use, utilize the Old Testament laws to do exactly what 2 Timothy chapter 3 tells us the Scriptures do to equip us for good works. All Scripture is useful, and that's one of the uses. And so as we ponder things like uh, how the poor were cared for in ancient Israel, the gleaning laws, 
You know, you didn't take away all of the harvest. You left some, and so that the, the, the working poor would be able to come along and take up the rest of it and be able to eat, put that away. And so they worked. It wasn't just dropped on their doorstep. They worked, but you didn't get every nickel and dime out of your property that you possibly could. You left it for others. Okay. In addition to that, we see that in the passage we have in... Um, Deuteronomy 15, uh, that there were loans that were made to poor people. They had a need, and, and they, they, instead of just, you know, giving them something, you, would, you could give a loan to them, an interest-free loan that was supposed to be released if it wasn't paid back by the end of the year of Jubilee. And so there's that warning there, don't be hard-hearted because you know, you know, the, the, the year of release is coming. Continue to be open-handed with your brother. And so that was one way in which the poor were cared for. Another way was the, the every third year there was a tithe that was given to the poor. And so that was not administered by you, you know, like the gleaning laws were. That was given to the priests, and the priests were the ones who distributed it. And so we see three, all three kinds of things, the things that you can do. You can give to the deacon's fund, the officers of the church. Give that money as they recognize need. But you don't have to do just that. You're also free in Christ, if you so choose, to meet needs as you encounter them among other people. You're free to give them loans. You're free to perhaps say, you know what? Uh, come work at my house. I've got some stuff around the house that needs to be done. I'll give you food. I'll give you money. There are various ways you can do this that go beyond just tithing or beyond taxes. But this is not just about money. Philemon, I imagine, also acted to do good to them, building them in Christ. And so he he also met their spiritual brokenness, building them up in Christ, refreshing them in Christ with the knowledge of the... helping them grow in the knowledge of the Gospel themselves. And so the, the needs he met were probably not exclusively financial. They may have been emotional and spiritual as well. This is why in Hebrews 10 we are told, let us not, con- let us consider, rather, <laughs> let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so, part of the reality of him, of that text being written is that we all need to be encouraged. That there are days sometimes weeks or years, where we are discouraged, when we are downcast. And part of what we are to do is to find the downcast among us and encourage them, refresh them, let them know that the bruised reed he does not break, the smoldering wick he does not extinguish. They need to hear this news. Spurring one another on to love and good deeds, not one or the other. The good deeds are, are connected to the love. And so, you know, when we're discouraged, we tend not to love very well. And so as we become encouraged, we begin to love better. And so, as a result, you start to become a refreshing community. One in which weary saints 
find rest for their souls. One in which impoverished saints find some relief from the burdens they experience. Why is it that Paul is emphasizing this to Philemon? That is because Onesimus is coming home. And Paul wants Philemon to refresh his new brother in Christ when he might be tempted to discourage his new brother in Christ. Because a a big change has happened in Onesimus, as we're going to see next week. And Philemon might be tempted to treat him merely as his slave and be harsh to him. Paul wants him to recognize him as a brother and refresh him and encourage him and embrace him. And so he's reminding Philemon of all that he does for other Christians precisely so he will then do that towards his new brother in Christ, Onesimus. He wants Onesimus to be the object of Philemon's faithfulness. What love Paul must have had for Onesimus in that short time they knew each other. That's what the gospel does. And only the gospel can do that. So Jesus' point was that the poor were always going to be among you so that you can learn to grow in generosity and compassion. The only way to grow in generosity and compassion is to be near those who need it and to give it to them. That's it. (laughs) And so Jesus places the poor in our midst. There are many whom God enriches precisely so they can enrich others. Their act of faith sows to the Spirit so that they can refresh those who are materially or spiritually poor. And as Christ works in us, the poor among us will not be destitute, but they will have what they need. Not necessarily all they want, but they will have what they need. Because Christ glorifies Himself in the good works that his people do in his name, in his wisdom, and in his power. Let's pray. Father, I pray that uh, Paul's desire for Onesimus, uh, sorry, for Philemon would be, uh, well, it's my, my desire for us. I thank you for the ways in which it already takes place. For those who already are concerned about refreshing the saints. And yet, like Philemon, we can grow in this. We can become known for this. And so continue to work in us by the Spirit and by the Word to help us to to translate that gospel knowledge into gospel practice.
Help us to sow to the Spirit, to grow in compassion and generosity. Help us to resist the call of the flesh towards selfishness, greed, so that we might be known for our love and faithfulness not only to Christ, but also to His people. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.